I Take History Through My Coffee podcast, episode 12, The Medieval Book. By repeated reading through scriptures, they instruct their minds, and by writing, they spread the beneficial teachings of the Lord far and wide, a blessed purpose, a praiseworthy zeal, to preach to mend with the hand, to set tongues free with one's fingers, and in silence to give mankind salvation, and to fight with pen and ink against the unlawful snares of the devil. Cassiodorus Institutions of Divine and Secular Learning Late 6th Century CE Welcome back to the I Take History with My Coffee podcast, and thank you for continuing our exploration of the early modern period. Manuscript from the Latin manu, hand, and scriptus, written, literally handwritten. And for much of history, especially in the West, this was how books were created. Today, we associate books with printing. We make a distinction between manuscripts and books. Manuscripts are handwritten books. Incunabula are early printed books. Books are printed. Yet printing was just the means of production. The end product was the same. Books, properly called codexes, appeared in the first century CE and have remained relatively unchanged over the centuries. In antiquity, books took the form of a papyrus roll. Papyrus was made from the plant of the same name traditionally grown in Egypt. Thin strips of stalk were laid side by side and overlapped each other in one direction. A second perpendicular layer was done over the first. This created a strong, flexible writing surface. The problem was that one could only write on one side of the papyrus sheet. Papyrus sheets were stitched or glued together to form a roll of about 30 feet. The sheet's width was not related to the width of the written columns. A blank column was left at the start to protect the roll. The title and author's name were written on a label attached to the outside of the roll. A reader would be forced to unroll one side while rolling up the other, as they read. In the latter half of the first century CE, 
The Roman poet Martial is the first to mention codexes explicitly. He praises their convenience for travelers. Yet little is said about codexes until a century later, when they are considered an acceptable kind of book. Literary and scientific texts were still done with the papyrus roll. Only in the 4th century CE does this trend change. But early Christians, on the other hand, seem to have used the Codex from the earliest days. Codex is the ancestor of our modern book. It was comprised of individual sheets written on both sides and then bound together in some fashion. Hardboard covers, front and back, protected the pages within. The Codex was economical, compact, comprehensive, convenient, and easy to reference. But despite these attributes, it is believed that the success of the Codex over the role can be directly linked to the success of Christianity. Along with the rise of the Codex was the transition from papyrus to parchment. This transition was most likely due to the disintegration of the Roman Empire. Papyrus from the Mediterranean became expensive. Parchment is traditionally made from sheepskin. Vellum is made from calfskin. Both would be utilized throughout the medieval period as writing surfaces for books. Hides were soaked in a lime solution, the fur scraped off, and the skin stretched on a frame. Pumice was used to remove blemishes and smooth the surface. Parchment was scraped on one side, vellum would be scraped on both sides. New types of ink were also developed. In the ancient world, ink was prepared from soot, gum, and water. This is similar to modern-day India ink. It was not permanent, and it was easily washed off. In the medieval period, a much more permanent ink was developed. This was iron gall ink. Oak galls were commonly used. These were the abnormal growths on twigs and foliage created by the oak gall wasp. The galls were ground up and soaked in water, or even sometimes wine. This releases the tannins and other acids. This solution is mixed with equal measures of copperous, known as iron sulfate, and gum. Pyrite served as a natural source of copperous. The ink produced is long-lasting, but the acids tend to burn through the pages slowly, if made incorrectly. During the Roman period, there was a robust book production and trade system. Authors brought their work to specialized workshops responsible for producing copies and distributing them to buyers. Even so, 
the circulation of texts was somewhat limited among the Roman elite. Like much of everything else, this system collapsed with the Roman Empire. Beginning in the 6th century, the social and economic conditions that followed did not lend themselves towards consistent book production. Most importantly, very few people knew how to read, so demand for books plummeted. The monasteries of Europe would carry on the culture of books and learning in the early medieval period. Benedict of Nursia, the founder of the Benedictine Order, in his rules made reading compulsory. Time should be set aside for private reading of the Bible and the Church Fathers. A monk was expected to read at least one book a year. Since private ownership was not allowed, monasteries needed to build a communal library. This led to the establishment of the scriptorium, the place where books could be stored and read. Cassiodorus, a Roman noble who founded a monastery on his estate in southern Italy, expanded upon the Benedictine rule. His focus was on the preservation of classical culture. Therefore, he gathered as many books as possible in his library, and he made copying texts a central part of the monastic life. He equated copying manuscripts to God's work. The scriptorium was expanded to include copyists, scribes, and editors of texts. Through his efforts and the efforts of the Benedictines, book production became an integral part of monastic life. By the 10th century, nearly every monastery had a scriptorium. The so-called Carolingian Renaissance spurred a renewed interest in learning. We are indebted to the scriptoria for preserving much of the surviving works from antiquity. In the ancient world, texts were meant to be read aloud. And so these same scriptoria began to standardize word divisions, punctuation, and formatting. By the 12th century, scriptoria became associated with both cathedrals and universities. The process of copying text was labor-intensive. Copying was a technical skill that required extensive training by scribes. Finishing a single text could take weeks, and the scribe devoted much time to writing. Round-the-clock scribes were not unheard of. The scriptoria were isolated, quiet, and uncomfortable. Under these conditions, monks fell victim to what we would call clinical depression today. And since all the work was done by hand, human error was inevitable. Skipped words or lines, misspellings, false interpretations, translation errors. Even the best scribes were prone to accidental mistakes. Larger scriptoria had editors 
These were monks who compared the original text to the copy to ensure a modicum of consistency. There were rules stating monks could only copy what they saw, but this did not protect the text from being corrupted. Language could present a barrier as well, even with Latin. Older texts were closer to the original Latin spoken by the Romans. By the 12th century, regional dialects of Latin had developed, so even these older Latin texts were not fully understood by the copyists. Cheaper than papyrus, parchment was still expensive to obtain and use. But in the 13th century, paper began appearing in Southern Europe. Paper was invented in China as early as the first century CE. Like many other inventions, it was transmitted to the West via the Islamic world. Paper became widely available throughout Europe in the 14th century. Paper was made from rags of cotton or linen. The rags were soaked, left to rot, and then ground into a fibrous pulp through a mill. This was strained of water into a mold, and then any remaining moisture was squeezed out on a screw press. The paper was then treated to a finishing process to create a smoother, more impervious surface. Two men could make about five reams of paper a day. It was less durable and harder to write on than parchment, but it was much cheaper. As a literate middle class emerged during the later medieval period, the demand for books also grew. Not only household Bibles, but popular literature such as romances and technical works on a particular trade or craft. These were often done in the vernacular rather than Latin. Not much is known about the book trade outside of monasteries and universities, but there is evidence that one existed. A stationer was a person whose shop was in a fixed location. From this shop, he sold products collectively called stationery. Between the 13th and 15th centuries, the term stationer would be used to indicate a place where books were bound, copied, and published. Many were located in university towns, and stationers lent out books to university students for a fee. Often the stationer had a more extensive selection of books than the university's library. Regardless of the setting, book production had some standard procedures. Of course, one had to assemble the materials, parchment or paper, ink, quill. The first task was to create a choir or gathering of leaves. This was accomplished in one of two ways. The more traditional method was to take four sheets of parchment or paper, fold each once, and then nest them together to form a booklet, a choir. Alternatively, one could fold a single sheet twice 
for smaller books to get a choir of four leaves or eight pages. You got eight leaves or 16 pages if you folded it three times. The standard choir was 16 pages, but variations of this did exist depending on time and place. Next, the choir was pricked using an awl or similar tool. These created the textual margins. Afterward, the pages would be ruled. At this point, a scribe might condition the parchment with pumice or paper with a polished stone to further smooth the surface. Once this was done, the scribe was ready to write. The writing was done at individual desks. The desk would be at an angle. The scribe held a penknife in one hand to hold down the writing surface and to scrape off mistakes. Usually, the scribe began on the first page of the choir, the initial recto or right-hand page of the finished folio or book. The verso is the left-hand page. He continued in page order, pausing to let the ink dry after each recto. After completing a choir, chapter headings, titles, and illumination were added around the text. When the choirs were complete, they were sewn together using cords or leather. Wood boards formed the hard front and back protective covers, and these were often adorned with decorative leather or other fabric. The colophon would be at the end of a papyrus roll or a manuscript codex. Sometimes the colophon would appear elsewhere in a manuscript. The colophon included information regarding the scribe's name, the scriptorium, and the date. This practice continued in the early stages of printing. In fact, early printed books were a little different in their appearance from manuscripts. Early typefaces were modeled after commonly used scripts or those commonly used for specialized books, such as law books. But some innovations were beginning to emerge even in the early days of printing. One of these was the register. This device let bookbinders know how the choir should be ordered, and it allowed a book buyer to see that the book was complete. This register evolved into the modern table of contents. Another development was the printer's mark to replace a scribe's signature. Johannes Fust and his son-in-law Peter Schaefer were the first to utilize such a device in 1462. The printer's marks were woodblock designs that served as trademarks, and they indicated to a potential buyer that the book was published at a reputable shop. In the beginning, the mark was placed below the colophon at the end of the book, but printers began using larger woodcuts. The printer's mark was then transferred to the first blank page. This would lead to the development of title pages. 
By the end of the 15th century, the information found in the colophon had also been moved to either the title page or the verso of the title page. The 16th century also saw the development of much of the modern-day format of books, with title pages, table of contents, indexes, and page numbers. Throughout the Middle Ages, the need for book copies meant there needed to be a social network between monasteries and universities. These networks between institutions provided opportunities for books and book producers to travel. In this way, these places became connected intellectually, culturally, and economically. The need for books also saw the development, by the 15th century, of specialized craftsmen. And like other trades, book production came under the auspices of guilds. Some of these, like the one in Paris, were powerful enough to block the selling of books. This was the case in Paris, when Johannes Fust tried to sell the first editions of Gutenberg's Bible. Book production was time-consuming and labor-intensive. The required materials were in short supply and expensive to produce. Libraries of any size were confined to monasteries and then universities. Even these were meager and limited in their selection. Very few individuals were wealthy enough to build a private library beyond a household Bible. The shift in learning during the Italian Renaissance and the rise of humanism would lead to the growth of demand outside the church for books. Copies of high-demand texts became more available. The printed book was meant to meet this demand. It was cheaper to produce, and more copies in a day could be made than a room full of scribes. In theory, this meant a wider population could afford to buy a book. Though initially, this was not the case. Printing would significantly impact the revival of classical learning, Christian theology, and the rise of science in Europe. We will explore all of these in future episodes. However, in the next episode, I will explore the cultural shift resulting from the printing revolution. As always, maps and other supporting resources for all episodes are listed in the episode description. In the meantime, for more historical content, please visit the I Take History with My Coffee blog at itakehistory.com and also consider liking the I Take History with My Coffee Facebook page. Feedback and comments are welcome at itakehistory at gmail.com. If you know anyone else who would enjoy this podcast, please let them know. And thanks for listening. Thank you.